Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's readings come from Disenchantment by Charles Edward Montague. The story paints a picture of the British soldiers and their involvement in World War I. It was originally published in 1922. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. I want to help people doze off so they can have a productive day and achieve whatever they need to. I read a different story every episode to help you get a good night's rest. It is designed to play in the background as you slowly fall asleep. Every episode tells a different story and you're welcome to listen to whichever one works for you. Special thank you to Shellrich G Bear eighteen, Zoe W nineteen ninety nine, and Sweater O six for your kind reviews on iTunes. It is extremely rewarding to know that I'm helping you get the rest you need in order to have a productive day. Before you doze off, and if you would be so kind. Please take a quick moment to leave a review and rating in iTunes or your podcast player of choice. You would be surprised at how helpful this is. It really does help me reach more people who need a good night's rest. You're always welcome to say hello or support the podcast at boreyoutosleep.com. In the meantime, lie back relax and enjoy the readings. Chapter 1. The Vision Now that most of our men in the prime of life have been in the army, we seem to be in for a goodly literature of disappointment. All the ungifted young people came back from the war to tell us that they were fed up That was their ailment in outline. The gifted ones are now coming down to detail. They say that a web has been woven over the sky, or that something or other has made a goblin of the sun, about as full details of a pain as you can fairly expect a gifted person to give although he really may feel it. No doubt disenchantment has flourished before. About the year 1880, nearly all of the best art was wan and querulous. That of Burne Jones was always in trouble. Matthew Arnold's verse was a well-bred, melodious whine, Rossetti was all disarmament and displacement. 
yet you could feel that their broken toy view of the world was only their nice little way with the public. Burne Jones in his home was a red, jovial man, Arnold a diner out of the first luster, Rosetti a sworn friend to bacon and eggs and other plain pleasures. The young melancholists of today are less good at their craft, and yet they do give you a notion that some sort of silver cord really seems to them to have come loose in their insides, or some golden bowl which mattered to them to have been more or less broken, and that they are feeling honestly sour about it. If they do not know how to take it out of mankind by writing desolatory verses about ashes and dust in the English Review, at least they can, if they be workmen, vote for a strike. They thus achieve the same good end and put it beyond any doubt that they don't think all is well with the world. The higher the wall or the horse from which you have tumbled, the larger under nature's iron law are your bruises and consequent crossness likely to be. Before we try shaking or cuffing the disenraptured young Solomons in our magazines and our pits, it would be humane to reflect that some five millions of these, in their turns, have fallen off an extremely high horse. Of course, we have all fallen off something since 1914. Even owners of ships and vendors of heavy woollens might, if all hearts were laid bare, be found to have fallen, not perhaps off a high horse, but at least off some minute metaphysical pony. Still, the record in length of vertical fall and of proportionate severity of incidence upon an inelastic earth, is probably held by ex-soldiers and among these, by the volunteers of the first year of the war. We were all, of course, volunteers then, undiluted by indispensable Harry's later success in getting dispensable Johnny forced to join us in low countries. Most of those volunteers of the prime were men of handsome and boundless illusions. Each of them quite seriously thought of himself as a molecule in the body of a nation that was really and not just figuratively straining every nerve to discharge an obligation of honour. Honestly, 
There were about them as little as there could humanely be of the coxcombry of self-devotion. They only felt that they had got themselves happily placed on a rope at which everyone else, in some way or another, was tugging his best as well as they. All the air was ringing with rousing assurances. France to be saved, Belgium righted, freedom and civilization rewon. A sour, soiled, crooked old world to be rid of bullies and crooks, and reclaimed for straightness, decency, good nature, the ways of common men dealing with common men. What a chance. The plain recruit, who had not the gift of a style, said to himself that for once he had got right in on the ground floor of a topping good thing, and he blessed the luck that had made him neither too old nor too young. Rupert Brooke, meaning exactly the same thing, was writing. Now God be thanked, who has matched us with his hour, and caught our youth and wakened us from sleeping, with hand-made, sure, clear eye and sharpened power, to turn as swimmers into cleanliness leaping, glad from a world grown old and cold and weary. Of course, it is easy to say to any such simpleton now, well, if you were like that, what could you expect? Voulez-vous, George Danden, you were rushing upon disillusionment. Of course, he was. If each recruit in 1914 had become an Acampus, or even a Rochefort called, he would have known that if you were or are to love mankind, you must not expect too much from it. But he was not, as a rule, a philosopher. He was a common man, not much inclined to think evil of people. It no more occurred to him at the time that he was the natural prey of seventy-seven separate breeds of profiteers than it did then presently he would be overrun by less figurative lies. When Gabribaldi led an infantry attack against the Austrians, he was said that he never looked round to see if his men were following him. He knew to a dead certainty that at the moment when he reached the enemy, he would feel his men's breath hot on the back of his neck. The early volunteer in his blindness imagined that there was between all Englishmen 
then that oneness of faith, love and courage. Everything helped for a time to keep him the child that he was, except in the matter of separation from civilian friends. His daily life was pretty well that of the happiest children. The men knew nothing and hoped for wonderful things. Drill to the average recruit was like some curious game or new dance, various and rhythmic and not very hard. It was rather fun for adults to be able to play at such things without being laughed at. Their lives had undergone an immense simplification. Of course, an immense simplification of life is not certain to be a wholly good thing. A Zulu's life may be simpler than Einstein's and yet the estate of Einstein may be more gracious. If a boatload of men holding the order of merit were cast away on a desert island, they might, on the whole, think the life as beastly as Touchstone found the life in the forest of Arden. Yet some of those eminent men might find a soul of good in that evil. They might grill all day and shiver all night, and be half-starved the whole of the time. But their minds would get a rest cure. While they were there, they would have to settle no heart-trending questions of patronage, nor to decree the superannuation of elderly worthies. The brutal instancy of physical wants might be trying, but they would at least be spared until they were rescued. The solving of any stiff conundrums of professional ethics molding the pet recreations of civilized men, you find their craving to have something simple to do for a change, to be given an easy one after so many twisters. People whose work is the making of calculations or the manipulation of thoughts have been known to find a curiously restful pleasure in chopping firewood or painting tool sheds till their backs ache. It soothes them with a flattering sense of getting something useful done straight off. So much of their real work is a taking of some minute or indirect means to some end remote, dimly and doubtfully visible, possibly for the dread thought will intrude, not worth attaining. The pile of chopped wood is at least a spice of the ultimate good, visible, palpable, 
it is success and the advanced and complex man, the statesman or sociologist who has chopped it, escapes for the moment from all his own advancement and complication, and savours in quiet ecstasy one of the sane primeval satisfactions. The climber of mountains seeks a similar rapture by going to places where he is, in full exertion, the sum of his physical faculties little more. Here all his hopes are for things close at hand. Ambition lives long one arm stretched out to grasp a rock eighteen inches away. His sole aim in life may be simply to top a thirty-foot cleft in a steep face or stone. At home in the thick of his work, he had deemed to be everlastingly threading mazes that no one could help thread right to the end. Here on the crags it is all divinely simplified. Who would trouble his head with subtle questionings about the human life will, might or ought to be when every muscle and nerve are tautly engaged in the primal job of sticking to life as it is. To have for his work these raptures of play was the joy of the new recruit who had common health and good humour. All his maturity's worries and burdens seemed, by some magical change, to have dropped from him. No difficult choices had to be made any longer, hardly a moral chart to be conned. No one had any finances to mind. Nobody else's fate was put in his hands, and not even his own. All was fixed from above down to the time of his goings to bed and the way he must lace up his boots. His vow of willing self-enslavement for a season had brought him the peace of the soldier, which passeth understanding as holy as that of the saint, the blitheness of heart that comes to both with their clarifying, tranquilizing acquiescence in some mystic will outside their own. Immersed in that Dantean repose of utter obedience, the men slept like babies, ate like hunters, and rediscovered the joy of infancy. In getting some rather elementary bodily movement to come right, they saw everything that God had made, and behold... It was very good. That was the vision. The mental peace, the physical joy, 
the divinely simplified sense of having one clear aim, the remoteness from all the rest of the world, all favoured a tropical growth of illusion. A man, says Tennyson, imputes himself. If he be decent, he readily thinks other people are decent. Here were hundreds of thousands of quite commonplace persons rendered by comradeship in an enthusiasm, self-denying, cheerful, unexacting, sanely exalted, substantially good. To get the more fit to be quickly used men would give up even the little darling vices which are nearest to many simple hearts. Men who had entered an almost reasoned passion for whiskey, men who in civil life had messed up careers for it, and left all and followed it, would cut off their whiskey lest it should spoil their marching. Little, white, prim clerks from Putney, men whose souls were saturated with the consciousness of class, would abdicate freely and wholeheartedly their sense of the wide, unplumbed, estranging seas that ought to roar between themselves and Covent Garden market porters. Many men who had never been dangerous rivals to St. Anthony kept an unwanted hold on themselves during the months when hundreds of reputable women and girls Round every camp seemed to have been suddenly smitten with a mechanic frenzy. Real, constitutional, lazy fellows would buy little cram books of drill out of their pay and sweat them up at night as soon as they get on the faster. Men warned for a guard next day would agree among themselves to get up an hour before the pre-dawn winter to practice among themselves the beautiful symbolic ritual of mounting guard in the hope of approaching the far-off, longed-for, ideal of smartness, the passport to France. Men were known to subscribe in order to get some dummy bombs made with which to practice bomb-throwing by themselves on summer nights after drilling and marching from six in the morning till five in the evening. How could they not have the illusion that the whole nation's sense of comradeship went as far as their own. Who of all those who were in camp at the time and still are alive will not remember until he dies 
the second boyhood that he had in the late frosts and then in the swiftly filling and bursting spring and early summer of 1915. The awakening bird notes at dawn, the two-mile run through auroral mists breaking over a still inviolate England, the men's smoking breath and the swish of their feet, brushing the dew from the tips of the June grass and printing their track of darker green on the pearly grey turf, the long intent morning parades under the gummy shine of chestnut buds in the deepening meadows, the peace of the tranquil hours on guard at some sequestered post, alone with the sylvester midnight, the wheeling stars and the quiet breathing of the earth in its sleep, when time to the centuries sense fleets of unexpectedly fast and life seems much too short because day had slipped into day and without the night long sleeper's false sense of a pause and then jocund days of marching and digging trenches in the sun the silly little songs on the road that seemed then to have tunes most human, pretty and jolly, the dinners of haversack rations you ate as you sat on the roadmaker's heaps of chopped stones or lay back among buttercups. When you think of the youth that you have lost, the times when it seems to you now that life was most poignantly good may not be the ones when everything seemed at the time to go well with your plans and the world as they say to be at your feet rather some few unaccountable moments when nothing took place that was out of the way and yet some word of a friend's, or a look on the face of the sky, the taste of a glass of spring water, the plash of laughter and oars heard across midsummer meadows, at night raised the soul of enjoyment within you to strangely higher powers of itself, that spirit bloweth and is still. It will not rise for our whistling nor keep a timetable. No wine that we know can give us anything more than a fugitive caricature of its ecstasies. When it has blown free, we remember it always and know without proof that while the rapture was there, we were not drunk, but wise, that for a moment some intervening darkness had thinned, and we were seeing further than we can see now into the heart of life.
And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you're feeling drowsy, and if you're not yet, please feel free to listen to another episode. Until next time, good night.